Why don't you take your Bibles, and before I read you my text, I want you to see something. It's, uh, it's found in Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, Jeremiah chapter 7. I, 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 you know, it's been a while since we've been in this series that I entitled, Thus Saith the Lord. And, and I wanted to remind you what this is all about, what, what we're doing, what, what, what's, what, what sense of all this is there. And I want you to see in Jeremiah chapter 7 something that, that I think will help explain things. I just want to read you two quick verses out of Jeremiah 7. Uh, verse 25. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Now, guys, do you see what Jeremiah did with those two verses? Do you see what he said? He is um, its saying that these are words that God spoke, and it says, God says, I sent you my servants, the prophets. Did you see that? That's in verse 25. But look at verse 26. Yet they did not listen to me. I sent you the prophets. But you didn't listen to me. Do you see that equation there, ladies and gentlemen? You see, in the mind of God, as he raised up prophets to be mouthpieces, to be spokesmen, what they were to do is to go to Israel and say, thus saith the Lord. And so if you denied, if you rejected the word of the prophet, you see it? You rejected God. So guys, this whole series has been the study or the look at two of the most famous of all prophets, Elijah and Elisha. All I'm saying is that as you watch them, as you listen to them, what they are, I think it was Martin Luther that says, God lives in the mouth of the prophet. As you see these stories, unfolding in the life of Elijah and Elisha, what you're seeing is things that God would have you to know about him, about himself. That's what this series is about, ladies and gentlemen, called Thus Saith the Lord. Thought I would remind you, and let's get back to it. I think this is number 10. We've got five more to go, so bear with me. Now turn to our text this morning. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 4, and I'll read you the text itself. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. You follow as I read that which is inspired, infallible. The very mind of God is black words on a white page. Beginning at verse 8. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband... Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or so to to the commander of the army? 
She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of those servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, take up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. When Elisha came to the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. You might remember it was in the summer of 1993 that... um, Pope John Paul II uh, was in Denver, Colorado, and he was speaking to this massive throng, this massive throng. I saw a picture of it, <clears throat> this massive throng of young Roman Catholics. And that, um, that afternoon, his text was John 10.10. 10. You might remember John 10.10. 10. I'm paraphrasing it, but it goes something like this. It's uh, Jesus speaking, and he says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In that sermon, the Pope coined a phrase that has been picked up by the, um, by the anti-abortion movement as kind of the watchword phrase of the whole movement. What the Pope said was he called it a culture 
of death. A culture of death. And of course, that's what's been picked up by the anti-abortion movement, as I told you, to describe what's going on with this thing called abortion. A, a, A culture of death. It's an apt phrase, isn't it? The, the reason I mention that is because when I read Second Kings 4, at least beginning at verse 8 and going through the rest of the end of the chapter, what seemed to bounce out to me was a culture of death. I, did, I didn't read you some of this because I wanted to shorten the text somewhat, but beginning at verse 38, <clears throat> and Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was famine in the land. There's a famine. I mean, there's uh, economic and and, um, uh, agrarian hardship all around. There's there's no food anywhere. There's this little pocket of people around Elisha where there's some life. But everything else is death. You you uh, you read on in that story, and the, the little sons of the prophets are eating, trying to fix a meal with the little food that they have, and somebody eats it and says, "Ah, there's death in the pot." Elisha says, "Well, we got to fix that." So he fixes the death that's in the pot, and then of course, this child dies. The child dies in a world of famine where there's no food, and uh, even the prophets have got poisonous food. It, it, it appeared to me to be a culture of death. And then the thing that I read was about this woman who lives with her husband, decides that she's going to add on a little room upstairs so that the prophet can have a place to live when he's in town. And the prophet comes and says, what can I do for you? And she says... It's verse 13. It's a Hebrew idiom when she says, I live among my people. She's saying, you know, I'm very content in where I am. I'm, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And then, um, then Elisha says, well, we're going to give you a son. And she says, don't lie to me. I don't want, please don't tell me that if it's not true. And sure enough, she has a son. I mean, this is an old couple. I mean, barrenness. There was nothing worse of a curse in Israel than barrenness among women. That curse has been removed and, 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 um, uh, this great kindness has been done to her and now she's got a son and, and then the son dies. What's up with that? I mean, it, don't, don't you, I mean, when I read it, did you taste, it's a, there's a bit of cruelty in there somewhere, don't you think? Capricious behavior. Here, have a son. How am I getting back? You know, guys, this woman has a lot that she could teach us. One of the things that she could teach us is about contentment. <laughs> um, you know, you look at verse 13 where she he's asked, what, what is it that I can do for you? And she says, in essence, nothing. I mean, would you have answered like that? I mean, uh, contentment. You know, that, you know that statement that Paul makes in uh, 1 Timothy 6 when he says, uh, godliness with contentment is a means of much gain? The word contentment is the word autokrya. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word autocrat. You know what an autocrat is, don't you? It's self-rule. Well, contentment is self-rule. It's rule over the self. Here's a woman who has this deep, subtle conviction 
that God is in charge of every nook and cranny of her life. All's okay with me. I don't need anything else. Well, that's a rare commodity, isn't it? Isn't it? I'll say it is. We could learn, we could learn a lot from her about contentment. But that's not where I'm going to take you today. Um, although it, it, it is a rare, a rare thing to see. I mean, we, we're so ambitious. We're so restless. We want more. We want to climb higher. We want to get further. You know, one of my heroes is Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think you've heard me say that, but Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the greatest sin among Christians is that we're not happy. We're not happy, are we? <laughs> we're not happy and we want more and we're, we want to go higher and we want to have this and we want to get there and get over there. How many of us would respond to the offer? What can I do for you? What, what do you want? Eh, nothing. I'm fine. I live among my own people. There's nothing that I don't, that I don't have that I need. Not much of that among us, is there? But again, that's, that's not what I want to do with our time because, I mean, we could learn from this woman in that, but there's something else that I want you to see that I think we can learn from this woman. We can learn how to manage a crisis. We can learn how to manage a family crisis. We can watch her as she, as she deals with this thing that kind of explodes into her life. And, and, and somehow learn something, about, hopefully, about how to manage a crisis. You know, I have a friend um, who told me a story once about uh, a uh, co-worker of his, a man that had worked 30 years in the government, and he was retiring. He was, um, he was 49 years old. Now, he had started when he was 19. He was an air traffic controller. And apparently... Uh, if you've got a government job, uh, after 30 years, you get a decent retirement. I, 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 I've never worked for the government except for a tiny time. But anyway, uh, this man was retiring at age 49 after 30 years with the government. And he'd already bought a place in, in Florida uh, that was right next to a golf course. And uh, he would bring the brochures in um, into the office to show all of his buddies about the place that he bought, and he's so excited about the house that was on there. And, and he, he, it was a canal in his backyard that allowed him direct access to the ocean. And man, he was just so excited. He was going to retire and move down there <laughs> before he moved, before he could move. He was diagnosed with brain cancer. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of our dreams came true and all of our plans were realized? We skip from one success to the next. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is fantasy. Reality is life Life filled, I don't want to say filled, life interrupted with a crisis every now and then. One or two or ten 
That's reality, ladies and gentlemen. And I say to you, if you have a view of reality that does not provide you a coping mechanism for crisis, you've got the wrong view of reality. Mormonism has no coping mechanism. Islam has no coping mechanism. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, alcohol is not a coping mechanism either. Neither neither is an affair, or neither is uh, going out and buying something new. If your view of reality does not allow, does not provide you a, a coping mechanism for crisis, then you've got the wrong view of reality. But guys, uh, you know, I'm, um, I've been in the ministry some 35 years now. Um, and the, the, uh, the chief question that people, well, actually, there's the three top questions people ask when they're in crisis. The, 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 the first question they ask is why? The, the second most frequent question they ask is Why? And the third most frequent is why too? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why God? Well, you're not the first person to ever ask why and you won't be the last. Job in his book asked why 16 times. Never got an answer. <laughs> How about that? You never, God never answered his question. And I'm not telling you don't ask why. You you can ask all you like. But I am telling you, you may not get an answer to your question, at least this side of heaven. You can ask why all you want. But there is no obligation on God's part to answer you. You may, you may not. So you don't get explanations for your crises or, or the Bible doesn't give you, at least, it doesn't give you an answer to your why questions. But here's what it does give you. It gives you little stories like this. It gives you a story about a woman who didn't want a son in the first... Well, she did want a son, but I mean, she didn't ask for this boy. She wasn't, you know, desperate. She was content. Then she goes and the prophet, God gives her a son, and, and now he dies. And you get a chance to watch her... Manage that. And, and that, folks, ought to help us. That ought to help us as we, as we, I don't know, gain insight, hopefully. I, I, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, um, but just learn some lessons from this woman and what she does. Or just look at the story. Let's, let's try to extract from it some insight that will help us manage our own crisis. So here we go. Here's the first thing that I want you to notice, guys. The first insight, I guess you'd call it. If anyone had a right to ask the why question, it would have been her. But, but she doesn't ask that question. But here's what, she doesn't ask the why question, but I want you to notice what she does do, which was, is downright noteworthy, what she does do is that she drives herself to the place where she can get some words from God. 
she uh, she nods to her husband and says, I'll be gone for a while. But the thing that she does is she gets herself on a donkey and she says, I've got to go hear from God, Elisha. I've got to go hear what God has to say about this situation. Before she speaks to anyone, she wants to know what God has to say. God, would you tell me what your view of this whole thing is? I need my perspective constructed based on what yours is. Guys, here's the point. The factor that affects the outcome of any major crisis, that is, will it become a growth-producing experience for me, or or will it be some kind of crippling, embittering um, tragedy, the key factor is... The degree to which our minds, our attitudes have been shaped by what God has said in his word. Your perspective, your attitude towards your situation must arise out of what God has said to you out of this book. All those other perspectives, all those other attitudes will bite you. Nothing will determine the outcome of your crisis more than your theology. That is what you think about God, who he is and what he's like. In the, in the middle of this crisis that you may find yourself in one day or in, in right now, you won't want to talk about the stock market or the sugar bowl. You'll want to know, I hope. What does God have to say about my crisis, this this crunch time that I'm in? What does he have to say about it? Now, related to that, but secondly, look at verse 23. Before she knows any particle of the outcome of her crisis, she says, all is well. At that moment... All this woman knows is that her son is dead, lying up on a bed in the prophet's room. And yet she says, all's well. How'd she do that? I want to suggest, guys, that she has come to know a God that she knows is full of surprises. But each one of those surprises is ultimately designed for his glory and and her good. You know, I hadn't said this in a while, but I used to say it a lot. Um, But I don't remember saying this in quite some time. Here's a quote for you, ladies and gentlemen. It's not from me, but I don't know who it's from. Um, Because I know the who... I can endure the what without knowing the why. I like that. Because I know the who, I can endure the what without knowing the why. See, that's what you see in this woman. Because I know him, I can endure this without any explanation. You know, another one of my favorite quotes that I haven't used in quite some time is from Sheldon Kopp. And I don't even know who Sheldon Kopp is. K-O-P-P. I don't know who the guy is. But he said one time, he said, life can be counted on to give me as much pain 
as I can possibly bear. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if that's so, then you might want to know something about how this woman did this. And what she did was she knew something about God, which allowed her to endure a situation without having an explanation. Now, let me summarize just those first two things that I've said. What I'm saying, guys, is that nothing will serve you as well as your knowledge of God in the time of crisis. The crisis is not the time to start gathering knowledge about God. Hopefully you've got that long before the crisis arrives. Nothing is going to serve you. Nothing is going to help you like what you know to be true about who God is and what what he's like. But instead of that, what we do is we end up we end up listening to our emotions. And I'm telling you guys, Satan does a jig all over us, and we end up in chaos. Our emotions are the shallowest part of us, and, and out of them comes decisions that that really damage us. We decide we're gonna drink some more, or we're gonna take a pill, or we're gonna we're going to get myself a girlfriend or I'm going to buy something new. All of which provide a, a, a temporary relief. But then, then the next morning, my, my turbulent emotions have now been made more complicated because of my guilt. Because I didn't do what this woman did. Guys, the promises of God are more real than anything that your emotional life can can offer you. Nothing is going to serve you better in the midst of crunch time than your knowledge of God. Here's, here's the fourth thing, just in this verses 25 through 30. She's, um, you know, Elisha says to his servant Gehazi, you go take care of this. And she says, um, uh-uh, <laughs> I'm not letting go of you. Um, and so Gehazi tries, it fails, and then finally Elisha shows up. The point is this. This woman won't accept anything less than the real thing. Um, substitutes just won't work. They're just not acceptable. You know, um, the ceremonial, the superficial, the surfacy. You know, maybe I, uh, I adjust my schedule to include more church time. Mm-mm. I ain't going to do it, folks. The only thing that's going to suffice is the real thing. And that is you grabbing hold of God and saying, I'm not letting you go. Here's a fifth little insight. Um, <clears throat> this this thing that's happening here, this death of this little boy, this happens to somebody who's a God lover. I, I'm just saying that God lovers are not exempt from pain, folks. Um, in fact, our Heavenly Father 
he confuses even those who love him. Um, I think it was St. Teresa of Avila who once said, you know, God, you'd have more friends if you treated the ones that you had better. But even those of us who are in love with this God, he confounds us too. We don't know what to make of him sometimes. Fifthly or sixthly or something. I just want you to notice the intensity of her grief. Guys, um, grief is not inconsistent with genuine faith. Unbelief is. But grief is not. God's people grieve. You know, I read in Table Talk, and it was in December, I think. Um, you know, if, if y'all aren't reading Table Talk, you're really missing something. There was, there was one last month. There was one this month. I was sitting around a pool in Fort Myers, Florida last week, and I read this thing and went to Susie and said, you got to read this. It was about worry, by the way. But anyway... Um, there was this article last month, and this guy was, he made this, and I'd never heard this before, but do you know the name Israel? Does that ring a bell? <laughs> You've heard of Israel before? You know, that was a, that was the name that God gave to Jacob. You remember that? You remember where it was? It was in, it was in Genesis 32, when they had that wrestling match at uh, Peniel. You remember that? And, um, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so God gave the, the Jacob, the, the, the father of the, you know, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, he gave them a name. He gave them the name Israel. And do you remember what Israel means? He has struggled with God. When God got ready to name his people, he named them God strugglers. We struggle with this God. He confounds us. And the inevitable result, guys, is always, is going to be grief. Yes, but that is not inconsistent with genuine faith. Unbelief is. Sin is. But not grief. And then finally. I just want you to, I want to say this and get it on the table or get it on your table. God allows his people to suffer. And my, I say that to say this. This may be the only explanation of the crisis that you may ever get. Nothing can touch the Christian without having first received God's permission to do so. You got to know that. It is God who creates these crises for his own glory and our good. But ladies and gentlemen, if you do not accept that statement, that is that God allows us to suffer. If you, if you do not accept that statement, then you really don't believe that God is sovereign. And if you don't believe that God is sovereign, then I'm telling you, my dear friend, you are helpless. In the face of the forces of heaven and hell. You know, I've mentioned this name before. Um, Carl Walenda. The Flying Walendas. I'm kind of dating myself because they were really famous back in the 70s. Maybe before the, the 60s and the 70s. But 
the Walindas were trapeze artists, and they were, um, and I've used the Carl Walinda to illustrate faith before, but I, I want to tell you the rest of the story. Uh, maybe you know this story already, but I want to say it was the early 80s, but it was in Puerto Rico uh, that they um, had stretched a tightrope between two condominiums in Puerto Rico. And they were doing their signature act. And their signature act was a pyramid on the on a high wire. The family formed a pyramid on a high wire. Well, that was their signature act. Uh, they made millions doing that thing. Well, on this occasion in Puerto Rico, a, a, a certain gust of wind came, blew them off. Two of them were killed. Two of them were injured for life. The one, one of them that was killed was the patriarch, Carl Walinda, the father of it all. He was killed. And so for a good while, the, the flying Walindas went into just obscure depression. They, they, they just hid from everybody, which is an understandable response. But after a while, they made it known that they planned to return to the high wire and uh, they were going to do the very, the very thing that had Ended in, in tragedy. So the day came, got up, got up there, and sure enough, they did the, the human pyramid on the tightrope. When they got down safely, they, the, the, the reporters kind of descended upon them and said, why, why did you, why did you have to do that? The very thing that, that, that caused such tragedy. Why that act? And the senior member of the family responded. He said, <clears throat> he said, um, for us, to be on the wire is life. All else is waiting. Here's my point, guys. So often the question in the midst of a crisis is, or perhaps endured it and it's over maybe, but how do I get back up on the wire? How do I get back to life? Guys, crisis crushes, but it doesn't crush pointlessly. It's um, it's often used to refine and, and to purify God's people. You know, um, I'm not the first one to have said this. In fact, I'm in the long list of people. But you know that the foremost character quality of the of the believer. I hope you know this. In fact, I forget who it was. I want to say it was Chrysostom who said the the three foremost characteristics of a Christian are humility. Humility and humility. And you know that the New Testament promises grace to the humble and resisting the proud. You know that. So if we know that that's important, I can tell you this. One of the things that crisis does is that it humbles a people who tend to be high-minded. Like us. I'll read you this. Maybe you've heard this before. This was from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He wrote it in the Gulag Archipelago. You know, he was a Nobel Prize winner. He, the Russian, who was uh, confined in a concentration camp for years. And he wrote about it in the Gulag. The Gulag. Anyway, he says this in the, he says, It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirring of good. Gradually, I, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, 
nor between political parties either, but right through all human hearts. Listen. So bless you, prison, for having been in my life. Bless you, prison. I needed that. You know, guys, some never recover from a divorce, from a job loss, from a a child on drugs or death or serious illness illness what is going to make the difference who are going to be the survivors who are the people who are going to get back up on the wire you're going to be people who do just what this lady did They're going to go find out what God has to say. I close with this. There was one occasion, one event, where the one who suffered deserved none of his suffering. There there was one piece of suffering that made no sense at all. The one who suffered, he deserved nothing but good. There was no sin in his life that it had to be exposed. There was no distance between him and the Father that needed to be eliminated. There was no, there was no spiritual slumber from which he needed to be awakened. There was no neglect of his soul that needed to be rebuked. Jesus. And the only thing that makes any sense of his suffering Is the gospel. The gospel is a story, ladies and gentlemen, that eagerly announces that the Savior suffered in my place. And because He has suffered, my sufferings will be limited to this life. All that the Father demanded of me, He paid. For me. And so, for those who are in Christ, no more culture of death. He has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But everything outside it. Father, I I do pray that you will help your people, help all of us who face whatever it is that we have to face, and it's often um, a multitude of things, but whatever it is, Lord, would would you remind us that our safest place is to go grab you by the leg and not let go? Would you remind us that our our theology is the thing that's going to steer us, not our emotions? And would you use these few minutes together to equip us to face 2010, whatever it brings? Um, people who are here this morning might not be here on this planet this time next year. But whatever it is that we have to face, would you, um, would you make yourself very real to us? 
Not that you have to answer our questions. But would you stay close? Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met Jesus Christ, who have never who have never received the gift of eternal life by grabbing hold of Christ and his finished work, would you cause them to see that all that surrounds them is a culture of death? Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake.